0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, despite no family history and few risk factors, master swimmer Tripp Hedrick had his first heart attack at age 46. After open-heart surgery, he's back in the pool, and he has his sights set on another world record.
2: On today's program, we'll hear Tripp's story.
3: Uh, put me in an ambulance. They said, if the red lights come on, do not follow. You just- meet us at the hospital. So I was kind of in the back just chit-chatting with a gentleman and all of a sudden he said, can you cough? And I I coughed and he pounded on the window and told this guy to go.
2: Also on the program, we'll learn about minimally invasive surgery for skull-based tumors.
1: And the fascinating world of forensic pathology. All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Clay, better known as Trip Hedrick, had his first heart attack when he was just 46 years old, back in the year 2000. Now, he didn't have any risk factors, and he had no family history of heart disease. And he ended up with a stent to open the clogged artery to his heart, and, and all seemed well. Until 2007, when he had more chest pain and ended up with a second stent, and all was well. Oh. Until 2015. <laughs> I'm noticing a theme. Yeah, when he noticed he was short of breath and he ended up with a third stint, and all went very well after that. In fact, in 2017, he set a world record in the 50-meter butterfly for men ages 60 to 64. That's pretty impressive.
2: All is well, I think, is the key phrase here. In 2018, he went for that treadmill test and flunked it, a new blockage. But this time, a stent wouldn't work. He needed open-heart surgery. And here to tell the story in his own words is Trip Hedrick and the Mayo Clinic heart surgeon who performed the procedure, Dr. John Stulek. Welcome to the studio, both of you. You. Thank, Morning, you so thank you so
1: much so trip it, it sounds like i mean you look slim trim fit
3: but you had several heart problems you've been a swimmer all of your life as a child i was always like a little fish in the water but we didn't have competitive swimming in newton kansas where i grew up and uh, i left kansas university and transferred to bemidji state university where our family had vacation for years in my childhood <laughs> found a swimming coach lee albrecht that allowed me to try out for the team I hung on the wall my first year and had a decent year. And then I was a three-year All-American swimmer after that at Bemidji State. And his motivation to me was giving me an opportunity. I wanted to pass that on, so I went into teaching and coaching so I could do the same for others that he had done for me. And um, after a couple years of gaining some extra weight, I decided to get back into the water. Actually, we would go up to our alumni meet. One of the years I went back, I swam faster than I had in college. And that kind of spurned me on to look into master swimming and went to my first master's meet in 1984 and got a national championship with a lifetime best in the 50 freestyle, and I was hooked. You mentioned that uh, at some of these
1: master swimmer, uh, swimmers' meets, um, you would see people who suddenly died. Yes. Um, and that's why you started getting EKGs during the 1980s, even yes. though you had no symptoms and no family history? That's
3: correct. It, it scared me. A gentleman um, in Fort Pierce, Florida, I remember it like it was yesterday, got out of the 200 butterfly, stood up, and dropped. And that was humbling. So I came back and got an appointment for a stress test back in, in the 80s. So, Dr. Sulak, how do you explain that? Uh, somebody who is
1: obviously fit and a good swimmer, they're in the master swimmer program, and they all of a sudden
4: die. What, what happens? Every patient's different. You know, we think of coronary artery disease or heart disease as getting chest pain. It radiates down the left arm or jaw pain. And, and, and that's in a large subset of patients. But there's a small subset of patients where heart disease is very um, occult. And especially in patients who are very fit, the condition of the heart is so good at extracting blood, et cetera, to the point where some defects in the heart may be masked by how efficient the heart is. And that's what I think we're seeing. You hear about it all the time, how someone smokes and drinks, they live till they're 90, or sometimes a marathon runner will Mm -hmm. will drop dead during race day.
1: Uh, Is it an arrhythmia uh, where the heart stops beating, or is it that the arteries just become clogged even though you're in good shape?
4: Well, the arteries are clogged, and the result of that is the heart muscle does not get the blood flow. And almost uniformly, it is an arrhythmia, a fatal arrhythmia, which right. which causes people to collapse. So so meaning
1: that the, the beating of the heart corrupts.
4: stops. It becomes inefficient. The electrical system Correct.
3: problem. So take us back to 2000. What happened? Did you Were you having some <laughs> symptoms? I had a bad habit of swimming by myself. I had keys to the pool, and I was swimming by myself one day and got hit with a a uh, jolt of chest pain, radiating arm pain. And I kind of stopped, and I remember I hung on the side of the pool for just a minute and thinking, this was really weird. And I, I kind of blew it off. I thought, you know, I lifted weights a lot. I thought maybe I had pectoral pain, maybe I had tricep pain. And I uh, finished a hard workout with no problem. And then it happened two days later, and then I decided I I needed a stress test so I called my doctor and I said I I need a stress test and um, I went over the next day and quote unquote passed with flying colors and uh, continued to have problems and a few days later I called one of the professors at Iowa State and I said I'm still having some you know some chest pain and arm pain And he said, you need to call your doctor back and ask him if you could be having vasospasms. So I called my doctor back, and he said, well, we'll get you set up with a cardiologist, but it's going to be two weeks because our cardiology group is no longer associated with the clinic. So I I still continued to work out hard. And a week before, I was to have my cardiology appointment, and I was in my office. I did not feel well. Uh, I was slumped over my desk a little bit. I had what I called a headache in my heart, and I'm not really sure what that was. I remember it. it was a really cold May, got out of the car and got hit by the wind, and I had the radiating arm pain and chest pain just from the cold wind. Got back in my car, drove home. Eloise was at the... Uh, getting her hair cut didn't want to bother her my father-in-law was not very that i didn't want to worry my father-in-law so i called my primary care and i it was on a saturday morning i said can i come in and get an ekg i said i'm not feeling very well i said maybe it's my asthma and she said you hang up the phone and dial 911 and i said oh come on and she said i said I'm, we're supposed to go to the circus in des moines <laughs> And I don't want to ruin my day. And she said, no, I'm serious. You hang up the phone and you call 911. If you come into here, I'm going to take you to the ER. So I hung up the phone. and. Did you? I hung up the phone. No, I didn't call 911.
4: I knew it. Yes, of
3: course. (laughs) And I took a hit of my inhaler, hoping that it was maybe my asthma. And that kind of made things worse. And so I got in my car and I drove to the hospital. And the closer I got to the hospital, the faster I drove. They got me in right away, nothing had shown up on the cardiac enzymes. The doctor said, you're not going home, I'm going to keep you overnight, or you can go to Des Moines where there's a, car- a really good cardiologist, and um, I said, let's let's do that. So we put me in an ambulance, they told Eloise she had to follow, they said if the red lights come on, do not follow, you just meet us at the hospital. So I was kind of in the back just chit-chatting with the gentleman, we are having a good conversation, And all of a sudden he said, can you cough? And I I coughed, and he pounded on the window and told this guy to go. And so the siren, the red lights and siren came on, and I really wasn't sure what was happening. So you went into VTAC. I did
1: go into VTAC. That's a a bad arrhythmia, right, Dr. Sulek?
4: That's right. When the heart muscle is not getting blood, it becomes very irritable, and the normal kind of sinus rhythm of the heart is disrupted because the muscle just can't function without oxygen. And uh, whether it's ventricular tachycardia, another uh, fatal arrhythmia, ventricular fibrillation, very common in patients that have heart blockages.
2: So you felt fine?
3: I think I might have felt something. Wow. But it just kind of freaked me out when he pounded on the window and said, go. And I I think this was pretty serious. Code three.
1: So you got to the hospital, and you ended up that night going to the cardiac cath lab and a stent, right? Yes. The amazing story of Trip Hedrick. And we've only gotten through stent number one. We need to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about stent number two, stent number three, and the surgery performed by Dr. John (laughs) Stulak. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Our guests are heart patient, Trip Hedrick, and heart surgeon, Dr. John Stulak. We've heard about the initial event back in 2000. You were just 46 years old. You had a stent, and tell us a little bit about
3: the recovery and what happened after that. Um, The recovery was was really tough mentally. And I was very fit and active. I, I had a lot of fears, uh, mental fears, of especially what it, how it affected my wife. And um, through the recovery, I, I was concerned: is this as good as it's going to be, as is ever going to be? And I just kept progressing from that. The first call I made out of the hospital was to a counselor because I knew the mental rehab I needed help with, and uh, that was the best call I ever made. It really helped me through my recovery. But um, I just kept wanting to do more, but at the same time was a little bit scared to do more. But my doctor let me back in the pool two weeks after my heart attack. and. I, I had no fear, but the gentlemen that swam with me were scared to death. <laughs>
1: so that was two thousand and, and take us up to 2007. and I think that you first came to the Mayo
3: Clinic in 2006. Were you 2006? having some problems then? Yes, I kept having some problems. I went through some tests there, and Dr. Shepard then referred me doc- to Dr. Sharon Thottaway, uh, who who is loving referred to as Dr. C, and uh, that started our relationship. I I believe I had a stress test when I first got here, and um, it didn't show much. And then in 2007, I was swimming, and again, I got hit with a a jolt of chest pain. And I didn't have the radiating arm pain, but I was really angry. Stormed out of the pool, got in my car, drove to the ER, and then the next day, um, I had an angiogram, and I had a stent that was uh, distal to my existing stent in my L.A.D., and I did get some good relief from that as well. All right. Now uh, everything was well. And then 2015, more trouble. 2015, I wasn't having workout issues, but I was having issues with short explosive bursts. And that troubled mm-hmm. me. Hindsight is always 2020. I was having trouble on a particularly hard set that I do every week. And I was getting some severe pain throughout my arms that was unique. So I went back to Dr. C. And um, I I think I passed that stress test, but she she could tell I was really uneasy and she trusted her instincts as well as mine. Had an angiogram and I had another blockage that was stented. They did inform me at the same time that I had uh, another area of concern that couldn't be stented, but they put a flow wire in and the flow is still extremely good. So they, they didn't worry about it at the time. So then uh, you were doing well. And in
1: fact, in August of 2017, you set another age group world record?
3: Correct. And then everything was well until 2018. My type A personality got the best of me. I wasn't (laughs) satisfied with my world record. So I hired a personal trainer to help me with my explosive training. And about the fourth week with him, I tore my calf muscle. And I was supposed to have had a stress test like... I think uh, two days after I tore my calf muscle, and I contacted Dr. Sharon Thoughtaway and she said, you know, with all you do, we want you to have a physical stress test, not a chemical stress test. So we put it off till, I think, March of 2018. And then you finally came up here, Yeah, the stress test, thought yes. you did great. I thought I did great, I was patting myself on the back, I went 15 minutes on the Bruce protocol, And we met with Dr. Sharon Thottaway the next day, and I thought it was going to be a great job. We'll see you next year. Everything's good. And she said, I'm really uncomfortable with the images. Your heart has enlarged significantly since the last time you were here. We need to go in and have a look. What and would cause the heart to enlarge, Dr. Stulak?
4: Just long-standing coronary disease. Again, the heart um, adjusts to its disease state. And so I, I think it was just very long. You know, we're hearing about an t- almost 20-year history of dealing with heart disease. So just long chronic changes.
1: And then you had the angiogram, and they said, this is not stentable. Right. You can't. So then okay. they introduced you to Dr. Stulak. Absolutely. Tell us about your now, first, first visit with Trent.
4: Well, it was really quite amazing. It's, it's rare, not that I'm in the best shape, but uh, it's rare that I walk in and the patient's in better shape than I am. Um, so I walk in, and, and again, I'm humbled every patient's different. Uh, you walk in and, and again, it's, you know, a lean, in shape, young patient that has a a sort of heart disease that you think of as as part of aging in a 70- or 80-year-old smoker or diabetic. But here we are, a world record holder in swimming, and heart disease can really affect anyone. So we had a great meeting. At this point, the writing was on the wall. Numerous issues, numerous stents, stents clogging. And tell us what you did. So, um, again, heart surgery is very stressful, obviously, but to be operating on someone who relies on his upper girdle, um, for the passion and what he does and how he defines his, uh, quality of life. Was very stressful. Uh, The technique, you know, the technical aspects of the operation was uh, a little more straightforward, but I was worried boy, was going through the breastbone and disrupting his upper uh, girdle really going to inhibit him in the long run. But the technical aspects of the operation I was not concerned with. I was more worried about getting him back to a quality of life that was acceptable to him, which was setting world records. The needs of the patient always (laughs) come first. (laughs) Absolutely.
3: (laughs) In fact, 16 months later, you set another record. Yes, yeah, I was fortunate enough to do that. I, of course, I didn't I never go as fast as I think I should have. <laughs> and hindsight is always 2020, but I was out of the water from March 30th until Memorial Day, and I got back in and was able to swim, but I couldn't lift weights until August, and that was a long time off of weights, and it's amazing how fast we atrophy. And how shrink your muscles shrink absolutely yeah. yes and so, so th-
1: it was a national record in the 50 meter butterfly yes. is that
3: right all right so what's next I mean I obviously you're feeling good well I promised Dr Stulak on a follow up visit I, I I think I kind of shocked him because after my follow up visit I asked him how quickly I could compete again and I said I, I'm aging up and I, I have my sights set on some <laughs> world records it's and so he awesome. said, <laughs> I said I said he said when do you age up and I said in March and he said I think that might be a little close. And I said, well, within two years, I promise I'm going to set a world record for you. So next summer? Yes. How how much do you train? I I swim five days a week. I I train a lot of short bursts, really intense training. Um, My workouts take anywhere from uh, 35 minutes to about an hour, depending on how much rest I take, whether I'm doing a real high-quality work or longer aerobic stuff. Knowing what
1: you know, Dr. Stulak, you were there. Are you? Does he make you nervous doing this? Absolutely not.
4: Yeah. He, he, he got what I want to call the Cadillac operation. So for young patients, when you think of bypass surgery, you think of one artery from underneath the chest wall and some vein from the leg, etc. But we used both uh, mammary arteries. Arteries last longer uh, than veins for uh, young patients with bypass surgery. So I, I, don't have any, I don't have any concerns of him doing that. He's giving him a stress, He's giving himself the stress test every time he exercises, so pr- proof is in the pudding. Right.
1: So uh, what would both of you say when it comes to heart disease? What
3: would you like people to know? I, I think I would encourage people to look for the subtle symptoms and not wait for the elephant on the chest and radiating arm pain. And the subtle symptoms might be, oh, I've got some terrible indigestion. Is this normal? Too many people think, oh, this can't be my heart, I myself included. But I, I would like people to think this could be my heart. See your primary care physician and say things, I, I'm noticing shortness of breath when I walk, is this normal? And press the envelope. And then the other thing is have an advocate. Have somebody. I, I'm blessed to have an, a wife that is a, a bulldog advocate for me if I don't feel well.
4: We think of the patient with heart disease being 80 years old and sick, and it can't. I mean, it can be a 40-year-old, 50-year-old person in shape. So pay attention to the symptoms do not be stoic. Don't say, oh, I'm going to the circus and not call 911. <laughs> so pay attention.
1: Well, obviously, heart disease can strike anybody just about any time, even someone as healthy as Trip Hedrick. Would, well, despite three stents, uh, double bypass heart surgery, obviously you continue to, to thrive, and you've got your sights set on another age group world record in the 50-meter butterfly. We're hoping for next summer. We wish you the best. I think you'll do it. Thank you so much. <laughs>
2: I think (laughs) Thanks to Mayo Clinic patient Trip Hedrick and his surgeon, Dr. John Stulek. Thanks to both of you.
1: Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about endoscopic skull surgery.
2: And there's a forensic pathology shortage. We'll find out why.
1: All that along with a health minute from Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
3: For the
0: Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, almost 15.7 million people in the U.S. report they've been diagnosed with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. One of the most common forms of COPD is emphysema. Symptoms include breathing difficulty, cough, mucus production, and wheezing. But a minimally invasive procedure is helping many patients breathe easier, says Dr. Sebastian Fernandez-Busi, a Mayo Clinic pulmonary and critical care physician. The procedure, which is called... Endoscopic lung volume reduction can improve symptoms of emphysema for people who no longer respond to medical treatment. Now, during the procedure, the patient's under anesthesia, and doctors insert a small scope through the mouth to the lungs. Then they place one way valves in the lungs that allow air to escape that has entered the lungs through holes that develop during emphysema. Dr. Fernandez Busi says with time, the part of the lung with the most emphysema will shrink, and that will allow the rest. Of the lung with less emphysema to have more space to expand and function. And people will get better breathing and a better quality of life. Now, the procedure is not a cure, but it can help improve symptoms of emphysema for many suffering from it. And in other news, butter is a dairy product made from the milk or cream of a cow. Margarine is made from vegetable oil. They may look similar and may be used similarly for baking and cooking, but when it comes to heart health, that's where the similarities end. So, what's better for you? A pad of butter or a spread of margarine? Well, it depends, says Catherine Zaratsky, a Mayo Clinic Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. So when we think about butter and margarine from a health perspective, particularly a cardiovascular health perspective, margarine seems to have a bit of an advantage, said Zaratsky. It comes down to good fats versus bad fats. So margarine is likely to have more unsaturated fat, whereas butter is going to have saturated fat. Now, saturated fat is known to raise bad cholesterol and low-density lipoprotein, or LDL cholesterol. And not all margarine is the same, though. Zeratsky said... Look for a margarine that comes in a tub rather than a stick form. Having a softer, more liquid-type product is a better option because it's going to contain more unsaturated fats. So does that mean you should forego butter completely? Well, butter, although not considered heart-healthy, is really enjoyable for some people. They like the taste. And so Zaratsky says the portion becomes especially important in that case. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Endoscopic skull base surgery. Now, let me try to explain that because it's our topic today. An endoscope is a slender tube-shaped instrument, like a small telescope with a light on it that's used to look inside the body cavity or an organ. So a medical or a surgical procedure any of any type that uses an endoscope is called an endoscopy. All right, now the skull base, it is the part of the skull that's supports the brain, and it separates the brain from the rest of the head. Okay. It actually only takes up the upper part of the brain, only takes up the upper part of the head. And the blood vessels that go from the heart up to the brain, and the nerves that come out of the brain, uh, they go through little holes in the skull base.
2: This is so, starting to make me nervous. Uh,
1: putting it all together. Well, <laughs> hopefully you never need whatever we're going to talk <laughs> about. Putting it all together, surgeons are using small tubes, small telescopes with lights on them to operate on tumors in and around the base of the skull. Now, that takes some precision and some skill.
2: Absolutely, and you don't want just anyone doing that if you are the patient. <laughs> that right. Joining us in studio to tell us more about endoscopic skull-based surgery are Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon, Dr. Jamie von Gompel, and ear, nose, and throat surgeon, Dr. Garrett Choby. Welcome both of you to the studio.
1: Thanks for having us. Good awesome. to have you, gentlemen. So there must be a reason there are two of you here. <laughs>
5: Yeah, I mean, uh, these surgeries are as complicated as you were suggesting, and they just uh, can't be done with one person, I think. And who
6: does what? We uh, do a lot of things together. Uh, I sort of get Dr. Van Gumpel through the nose to the area of the tumor. Then we work uh, hand-in-hand to address and resect the tumor. We also work hand-in-hand to close any defect or hole that we may have created during the surgery.
1: So when you say through the nose, is it through the nostril, or do you actually lift
6: the nose up and get in there? The nose is actually a lot bigger than you think. Uh, so the nose that we think of in the front of the face is very a very small part of the nose. We do access everything through the nostrils, so no external incisions for these surgeries. And we open up the sinuses that uh, line the in, in the nasal cavity, if you will, and really sit up against the skull base. And we use those sinuses as a corridor to get to these tumors.
2: I kind of wish I would have called in sick today.
1: <laughs> and how, far, how far back in do you go to get to where you need to be?
5: You know, it depends on what we're treating. You know, sometimes we're treating something just behind the eyes or just around the eyes. Sometimes we're going as as much as 12 or, or 14 centimeters into the head when we go down to the odontoid or the bottom part of the skull base.
1: So that's like five or six inches. Yeah. yeah. So how did you used to do this operation before you had these little
5: scopes? Well, you know, sometimes we made incisions elsewhere on the head and and and, you know, took some skull off, and then pushed the brain out of the way, or alternatively, some of the approaches were done by actually taking part of the face off, and these approaches allow us to mitigate a lot of the problems that we saw with those types of uh, procedures that they did back in the 80s and early 90s. What are you trying to get at? I'm assuming tumors, but what are you looking for? So we treat a variety of different things. Um, So we treat... Things that aren't tumors sometimes, like spontaneous CSF leaks, together benign. Yeah, spontaneous CFS leaks. Explain that to us. So sometimes uh, the skull base just gives up and doesn't keep the fluid inside the head, and uh, we... so
1: there's fluid around the brain
5: mm-hmm. and around the spinal cord, and it and it leaks sometimes. Yeah, and it's it's supposed to be around the brain. It's it kind of acts as a natural buffer. For the brain, and just once in a while, the the the, uh, the bone breaks down and the, the covering around the brain breaks down. And you can't have that leaking into the nose because that could lead to infections. So we treat a lot of those types of things together. Leaks?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, Leaks. Okay. So yeah. cerebral spinal fluid leak. That, so And how does someone present with that? Is it something that's coming out of their nose? And you figure out,
6: ooh, this is cerebrospinal fluid? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon. Uh, so most patients with the problem present with leakage of clear fluid out of one nostril, almost like a faucet. Wow. And uh, classically, it's related to a disease of elevated intracranial pressure, which can over time thin the bone of the skull base. that eventually, as Dr. Van Gumpel mentioned, uh, the bone around the, the skull base and the dura or the lining around the brain can give way, and then they spring a leak in the nose. All right. What else do you work on in there?
5: So a lot of tumors, most of them are benign tumors, like pituitary tumors. Uh, craniofringiomas, uh, but also some tumors that can be cancerous like chordomas. Cyanides
6: and uh, malignancies as well.
5: Cranial
1: pharyngioma. Tell us what that is. Is that, a, is that benign? <laughs> Sounds like it.
5: So it's a tumor that doesn't go elsewhere in the body, but it grows uh, locally. It can cause some problems. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a developmental rest that grows into a tumor over time. And they can be really challenging mm-hmm. tumors to treat, quite honestly.
1: And tell us how you prepare to do this and how you discover what the lesion is and where it is.
5: Most of these uh, come to it. So we're obviously at a, at a quaternary care. Facility. Most of these are recognized elsewhere. But a lot of the patients come in either with problems with their pituitary gland, headaches, or alternatively vision problems. And once those are discovered and worked up by another doctor, they come in oftentimes with an MRI. And uh, we don't have to do an awful lot of diagnostic workup. But then they meet with both of us. And sometimes other uh, doctors, because Mm -hmm. these lesions are that complicated, that we need input from a variety of people. And then we put together a surgical plan and, and, uh, and execute it to the best of our abilities. Yeah, yeah. And once you're in there,
1: I understand that you can actually use a CT scan in the operating room or get an MRI in the operating room to help you further visualize and, and determine exact location?
6: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great process that we have. We have the ability to use intraoperative navigation. So use a patient's uh, very own CT scan or MRI scan. We can register it with their own body in the operating room. And then use a probe, if you will, that will show us where we are in their head or their skull base in direct correlation to their CT scan. So it's sort of real-life anatomic visualization in both the patient as well as their radiographic study. Most commonly, we use CT scans, but MRI scans are also possible. And most of these lesions, do you suck them out with that instrument, (laughs) or how do you get them out?
5: yeah thank God that was <laughs> the more suckable. Um, you know that 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 does help a lot of these procedures because they can be removed and I, and i 'm assuming that you 've seen cordomas in the past. Um, not most, in that
1: location, but yeah, yeah, they can occur anywhere, practically.
5: But, but uh, most, most of them are, are suckable lesions, mm-hmm. but not all of them. In fact, we've run across some very difficult ones that are firm fibrous, very bloody. And realistically, those are the ones that really test uh, a team like yeah. ours' abilities and uh, really take a lot of thought and, and forethought into the procedure.
2: Well, this certainly is better than having to cut off part of the face to access <laughs> where you're at. So <laughs> I'm not a medical person, but I can at least get that that makes a lot of sense. But what are that might come up?
6: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. We we have to work, you know, obviously very carefully in these areas. And Dr. Van Gumpel and I are big believers in uh, a co-pilot technique, if you will. So it's not simply that we both have complementary skill sets surgically, but it's really our two minds working together, if you will. So thinking about problems and addressing them and sort of bouncing ideas off of one another. So in these anatomic regions, the most common things that can arise as a complication of surgery are damage to very important arteries that live nearby, or cranial nerves, nerves that control much of the function in the head and neck region. Uh, most commonly in this particular region it may be things related to vision, but certainly other deficits can occur as well.
1: All right, so you got four hands and you got two brains. It's <laughs> a, the epitome of the team approach at the Mayo Clinic. <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. Endoscopic skull-based surgery using lighted scopes to remove tumors in a very difficult location.
2: Our thanks to Mayo Clinic neurosurgeon Dr. Jamie Von Gombel and ENT surgeon Dr. Garrett Choby. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you. Thank thanks you. for being here, guys. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn more about the field of forensic pathology.
2: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Forensic pathologists. They perform post-mortem exams or autopsies to determine the cause of death. They studied tissues from the body and laboratory results to figure out how someone died.
2: Sounds like a great job, does not it? Well, maybe that's why there are less than 500 board-certified forensic pathologists in the country. And one of them is with us, Mayo Clinic forensic pathologist Dr. Reed Quinton. Welcome back to the program.
7: Thank you for having me back. Uh, Dr. Quinton, great to see you. So, forensic pathologist, tell us about your training. Most of us, or all of us, have to start within the field of pathology. So, uh, uh, But you've got an MD degree first. That is correct. Correct. In, okay, yes. then residency and pathology. Correct. So okay. MD-first, then uh, most people do a combination of anatomic and clinical pathology, uh, which is a four-year residency program. There is some mix and match there. So some people might do like anatomic pathology and neuropathology or anatomic pathology and pediatric pathology. So but what exactly does that mean? Each one of those is in some ways subspecialties within pathology. Anatomic deals with organ systems, deals with the big things. So for instance, surgical pathology, looking at biopsies, looking at surgical specimens, but it also covers autopsy. Uh, the clinical pathology deals with all of the laboratory management. So blood bank, mm-hmm. yes. uh, that type of thing. And then within anatomic there are subspecialties like forensic pathology, but also neuropathology or pediatric pathology, things like that.
2: I'm surprised to hear that there is a shortage because uh, the CSI effect, right. so to speak. I mean, but that doesn't translate over into what you do?
7: Not necessarily. It, it's The CSI effect is real, for sure. Um, and a lot of people become interested, at least in science, because of that to some degree. It's almost unusual that uh, if you look at television across the board, I would think forensic pathologists are probably the most represented uh, physicians uh, on television, and yet we're a very small community. Uh, but yeah, uh, kids get interested in it, and then they oftentimes find out what it takes to get to that point and mm-hmm. decide, eh, maybe that's not for me. So you're talking about four years of medical school, four years of pathology, then four more years? No. Uh, usually, after the four years of pathology, it might be, uh, for forensic pathology, it's a one-year fellowship, if oh, okay. they only do that fellowship. So five years of residency. Then, Roughly, about. Yes. You must know this
1: woman. I saw a book recommended Judy Melanick since there's only 500 of it. That's you right. know, Judy, she I wrote know, uh, this book, Working Stiff, Two Years, 262 Bodies in the Making of a Medical Examiner.
7: Yes, uh, Judy's actually uh, on the board of, uh, of the National Association of Medical Examiners with me. So we're both board members. The book is, I think, important in that, Every generation there 's usually one book that kind of makes people read it and go, "Ooh, I might be interested in this and I had you know my books at the time that kind of pushed me in that direction, and this is sort of the updated version of that uh, her Her book covers uh, her fellowship it 's just simply during her fellowship, but that fellowship for her happened to occur in New York right around 9-11 and all those events, mm-hmm. too. So. But there's some interesting stories in that book.
2: Well, put it on your mm-hmm. Christmas list. Right. <laughs> How do you do an autopsy?
7: Well, that's uh, it's kind of a complicated question. <laughs> uh, but in general, uh, there's two big parts of it. There's the external examination and the internal examination. The external examination is categorizing everything from identifying features, so hair color, eye color, tattoos, things like that, to looking at injuries or evidence of natural disease. The internal examination is what everybody thinks of, which is the actual performance of the evisceration, where we remove the organs and look at each organ individually. Uh, that tends to take longer, but it depends on the case. So for instance, if it is a homicide with multiple gunshot wounds or multiple injuries, the external actually takes much longer than the internal examination. Uh, So, but those are the two parts. Within that also are ancillary studies. So we may do radiology. We may do uh, uh, extensive toxicology testing or other things. Toxicology, meaning you're looking for drugs or chemicals, correct. et cetera.
1: That's correct. Are there different kinds of autopsies? I mean, you don't do the same kind of autopsy on everybody,
7: right? Uh, no, they, there are different uh, autopsies. The two main sort of uh, venues, if you will, are the hospital autopsy versus the forensic autopsy or medical legal autopsy. The hospital autopsies are very different in that they are actually made or done at the request of the patient's family. So uh, we approach that family after the patient has died and then explain what the possible benefits of the autopsy are.
2: Yeah, what are the benefits?
7: Uh, well, a lot of things. Uh, in, in the hospital scenario, uh, we can answer questions about what exactly happened because maybe they're not clear on, on what the mechanism was of death, but also they may have questions about uh, genetic disorders. Mm-hmm. Is this something that may affect the rest of my family? Uh, infectious disease. Uh, So a lot of different things we may be able to sort of help them walk through at the end. Uh, The big difference between the two types of autopsies is that hospital autopsies are consented by the family. So the family basically gives us permission to do that procedure, whereas forensic cases, we have – A mandate by the state to perform those cases and if the family objects we have to have a dialogue with them to sort of work out what can we do what can't we do Uh, but in general we have to uh, uh, if we have to do a case we have to do a case.
2: When it comes to children um, how do you determine in an autopsy if they died of SIDS or not?
7: Um, SIDS is an interesting thing because it's not a diagnosis. We all make it a diagnosis, but it's actually a classification. Sure. It originally was created as a terminology to identify a group of infants that died suddenly and unexpectedly during sleep, but nobody knew why. Uh, the tricky part about this is that as we identify causes of death, we actually exclude those cases from the SIDS category, oh. so they're no longer SIDS. Over the years, it became sort of morphed in a way into a diagnosis, which is really interesting because when I talk to a family and I'm trying to explain that your infant died of, you know, sudden infant death syndrome or sudden unexplained infant death, there's many different categories there or classifications. I'm basically saying, we don't know why your infant died. And I think a lot of families, as soon as they hear that terminology, for some reason, it gives them comfort because they've heard it on television. They understand, oh, that's a thing, but it's, it's kind of not. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to reeducate uh, and, and sort of explain to people today that SIDS is not necessarily a diagnosis, and we're trying to identify what is it that causes it. But the truth is it's, it's a large constellation of findings. It could be genetic disorders. It could be unsafe sleep environment or what have you.
1: So are you telling us that sometimes you do an autopsy on a SIDS uh, patient and it's negative? You don't find anything?
7: That's the actual definition of a SIDS case is okay. that after a complete scene investigation and autopsy, the findings are negative. So tell us about one of your most interesting cases. I love the cases where something just incredibly odd or unique happened that maybe we didn't know about until we did the autopsy, which really mm-hmm. speaks to the value of the autopsy. And I actually had skydiving accident. Uh, the people mm. on the ground observed that the parachute deployed and the person on the parachute just never moved again, and he just slowly drifted to the ground, and they all rushed over, and he was essentially dead at the scene. Well, it turned out that his parachute had not been packed properly. So parachutes tend to incrementally deploy. They they don't just burst open. If you watch video of them, they sort of puff out a little bit at a time. His was packed in such a way that the entire parachute just immediately opened all at one time. When it did, it tore his a aorta in three places. Mm. So he actually died from uh, an aortic dissection or transection, I should and that's say.
1: that's the big artery that Correct. comes, comes so, right out of your heart. Only, right, actually. right. Mystery solved. Yep. yep, you figured it out. <laughs> Forensic pathologists, their job is to figure out how someone died based on autopsy and laboratory results. It's a fascinating job. And I think if you're willing to go through all of the training, let's see, it's four years of medical school, four years of residency, another year of specialized training, I think for sure you can get a job. <laughs> <laughs> that
2: is true. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic forensic pathologist, Dr. Reid Quinton. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. And that's our program for this week.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives.
0: And I'm Tracy McCrae.
1: Thanks for joining us.
0: Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists you know.